The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. He did that on the cross. We saw Isaiah 7 where he said in Isaiah that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And we know that that happened at the birth of Jesus, that Mary, being a virgin by the Spirit, was given birth to Christ the Savior. A couple weeks ago, we saw Isaiah 9, the four titles of Christ, uh, eternal Father, mighty God, um, everlasting, I've got them all out of order, Prince of Peace, everlasting Father, mighty God, and uh, wonderful Counselor, yes. We were traveling the last two days, so pardon the brain there. But we have the four titles of Christ, that he would have the government on his shoulders. Last week, we saw Bethlehem, that, that, that little town that nobody really cared about except for one reason, because the Messiah would come, was the one from whose wanderings from ancient times, the Bible said, someone would come forth, and we know his name is Jesus. And today, we look at the theology of the genealogy. And not trying to sound rhythmic with that, but we need to see a bunch of names today. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And this is going to be very different, perhaps, than most of your, your Christmas Eve services. But I want to read over these names that probably mean nothing to you for the most part. But for Christ, they mean everything. And for us, in fact, by, by extension, they also mean everything. Because through this genealogy came the one that was foretold, the prophecies of Christ's Arrival. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1, going down to verse 17. It says this, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Amimadad, and Amimadad the father of Nishon, and Nishon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And verse 7, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. You ready for the pop quiz yet? <laughs> Verse 10. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to the Babylon, to Babylon. Verse 13. Verse 12, excuse me. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shetiel, Shetiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. This should be more familiar to you and of whom Jesus was born, who is husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So, verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, they were 
14 generations. You say, this is a crazy list. It is indeed, and I want to talk about it today. Three unexpected truths that come from this list that we have in front of us. And if you're visiting today, I want you to know we're not, we usually go verse by verse through this. We're not going to do that today. We're going to take some themes out of it, but the whole theme of it is, is that Christ came, and he came to save sinners such as you and such as me. Will you bow your heads with me this morning, and let's go before our Lord. Father, as we look at this list of names of people who lived so long ago, Father, we can't even remember what we did sometimes even a day or a week ago. But Father, despite it all, your faithfulness to carry through the promises of Genesis 3, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Micah 5, and so many other places we have not talked about these last four to five weeks point to this coming event that your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, would give himself for us. But it had to start somewhere, and it started in a manger in Bethlehem so long ago. Father, as we look at these names and the themes they contain and the truths they contain, more importantly, would you be lifted high? Father, thank you for genealogies because they show that you are such a good God despite the messiness of us people. We love you, Lord. We pray this today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. May be seated. Thank you. Now, if you're honest, and I won't ask for a raise of hands, but many of you probably zoned out during that, right? That's just how this goes. But as good Christians, we never skip or skim the genealogies, right? Because we are good Christians, and that's, we know that's not true either. But we know that there's a lot of names in here you don't know, a lot of names that don't make any sense. But most of us, I know there are a few of you in here, and, I'm, and I know one very close, that love genealogies, love them a lot. In fact, if you go to Independence off uh, Lee Summit Road and about 35th Street, there is the Midwest Genealogical Center, if you're really into genealogies. I'm not. I love history, but I'm not really into mine. Some people pay for websites. Some people do it on their own. But I think I have enough relatives already, and I think I'm not looking for new ones. I'm still afraid of the ones I have. Amen. And we saw them at Thanksgiving, and we saw them at Christmas, and we love them all. But you know what I mean. And they say the same about you, by the way, when you're not around. But in every genealogy, there is some slither of truth. But in some things, somewhere, something happened in your family history. You just saw from Abraham, the, the pinnacle of Jewish revelation, down to Jesus, 42 generations of everyone that came out to know the Messiah. But in this, we find Christianity 101. And this is a Jewish-focused gospel genealogy. This gospel that Matthew is writing is being written to Jews, those of his own faith. He's trying to establish for them that Father Abraham, the one they look to in Jewish life, all the way down to Jesus, is exactly how God planned it out to be. And so these show us, and you see that there in verse 1, if you want to follow along. He says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Genesis, 3 and ver uh, Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 5 open that way too. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you get down to verse 16 where he's born, Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This whole focus of this gospel is to point people back to Jesus Christ, especially the Jews. Now, many of you know that right now in Israel, there's a great war going on, and we're not going to chase that rabbit. We'll start back Revelation in a couple weeks, and we can talk about that a little bit more. But God is not done with the Jews. He never has been. But out of the Jewish religion would come a Jew that was sinless, that became the Savior of the world, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
This is a genealogy to show the credentials of Jesus himself. It's his resume. It's his, it's his way to show, I have my passport. I am the one you're looking for. There's no one else. Don't look anywhere else. And you notice that Jesus is called the Christ there, or the Messiah. And this goes back to 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah prayed that great prayer that he, the Messiah, will lift up the horn of the anointed one. He will lift up the horn of the anointed one. And all these were expected. All these prophecies were expected. They knew the prophecies. They were expecting the prophecies. But now Jesus is going to throw them a curveball of some unexpected things that they did not know about himself. But what I want you to know is that Jesus is a king who still surprises us. He doesn't do anything inconsistent with his nature, but he still surprises us. And the big idea today is simply this, is that we cannot mess up enough. We can't mess up enough to discourage God's gracious and sovereign plans for us. This whole list of people, 42 generations, there were some scoundrels in there. There were some sinners in there. And by God's grace, there were some saints in there. But I want to look at these three aspects today because they will be important as we unpack who the Savior is and remind ourselves what he came to do. And these are surprises, unexpected surprises that perhaps were not known during those days to the degree we know them now. The first thing I want you to see, the first unexpected truth, was that Jesus would be a sovereign king. Jesus would be a sovereign king. You note the lead up to this that Jesus was, uh, or Matthew, excuse me, leading up to Jesus, put them in blocks of 14. Did you notice that? Why is that? It's so they could memorize it better. It's so that they could memorize 14 names here, 14 names here, and 14 names there. If you've ever seen one of those game shows where they tell you to memorize like 100 numbers in a row, the winners usually break it down into small chunks. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, or 14 generations at a time, in this case. But Jesus here stands as the culmination of biblical history. He stands as the one that comes in the midst of a messy group of people. In this genealogy, you have tribal conflicts. You have the roller coaster of the rise and fall of the spiritual climate of Israel. You have some who were cast into exile. You have some who were heroes. And you have some who would have made the most wanted posters in the Wild West as being villains. You also have saints and sinners. You have bloodshed. You have sacrifices. You have kings. You have comings and goings. You have hundreds of years where it seemed like nothing was happening. And yet through it all, 42 generations, there is a sovereign king in the making. Not because he needed to be made, he's always been, but to be born as us and taking on human flesh. And we have to ask the question, how is Israel going to overcome this? How will the Jewish people be saved? I mean, shouldn't they be destroyed through 42 generations? Well, you would think so. But despite their flaws, despite their failings, despite their false starts, and even their fallenness, God had a plan. And aren't you grateful for that? And it is a sovereign plan. And when I use that word sovereign, I am talking about a plan that is without sin, without error, without any mess up, because God himself was able to do it. Jesus is the divine sovereign. He's not merely a royal sovereign. Jesus did not age up to become a king. Jesus is the ageless king, and he always has been, and he always will be. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And you see that up on the screen. Many people live their lives like God is not sovereign. They just believe that fate is guiding them. The stars are guiding them. Horoscopes are guiding them. 
That's never been God's plan for God's people. God has in his hands and in control everything that comes to pass. And that's, in fact, what happens. The surprise is that what is going to happen, and we won't get there today, maybe next year, but look at verse 18. You know these words well. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ uh, took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they had been together. She was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit. Only a sovereign God could have brought about, about everything that came to be through the sovereign birth of Jesus Christ. He was not just an anointed man. He was the God man. He's truly God and truly man. I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of false cults today that are walking around, that are celebrating Christmas, who are celebrating Jesus, but are celebrating just a man or a prophet of a man. Christians, we have the God man. You get Jesus. You get God himself, not just some demigod or lesser God. I think Martin Luther said it best, and I'll quote him. He said, quote, while Jesus was nursing at Mary's breast, he was at the same time holding the universe together with his hands. The staggering reality is, and this genealogy proves it, is that before Abraham was even born, Jesus said in John 8, 58, I am. And everything about this genealogy points to the fact that only God himself could have set these things in motion. And only God himself could have held them all together. So what do we have to hold us back from trusting him? If he can get through a messiness of 42 generations, he can get through the messiness of your life, your family, your circumstances, your past, your future, even your present. He's able to do that. It was an unexpected truth that he was a sovereign king. And if you're not a Christian here today, we're so glad you're here. But I just want to tell you, it's not an accident that you're here. For some reason, you're here today, and we're so grateful. Whatever that reason is, family, friends, or you're just curious, or you just it's tradition, thank you so much for being here. But it's no accident that you're here. And if you're without Christ, this may be the day that you come to Christ. Would you trust him and acknowledge your sin and go before the Lord? He is the sovereign king. I want you to see, secondly... And we'll focus here at, the, at verses 4 through 6 here in just a second. I want, he's only the sovereign king. That was unexpected in some sense. But he's also the redeeming king. He's also the redeeming king. You know, the Jewish expectation of those days is that the king would come and overthrow the government with swords and war horses and clubs and spears and all these different things. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, many times he had to remind his disciples that he wasn't here for political gain. He wasn't here for those things. He was here to change lives, to change the narrative, and be with us in our darkest moments. And as you glance over this, I don't know if you caught wind of this, but down starting uh, basically in verse 3 down to verse 6 or verse uh, 5, depending on your translation, you're going to see women's names in the genealogy. And that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Because in these days, women, I hate to say it, you were nothing more than a piece of property. It is what it is, but that's what it was. You were creating God's image, but you weren't nothing else outside of that. Your, your identity, your legal identity, your religious identity, in fact, in some degree, were tied to your husband or lack of one in those days. But did you notice the five women? Look down at verse 16. You'll notice the, the, the last one on the list is, is who? It's, it's, it's Mary. But there's four other names listed here. And I want you to know, these are quite some characters themselves. Tamar, Rahab, 
Ruth, and then Uriah's wife. I'm going to go through these for just a second and remind you of these. We have a lot of little ears here, so I will, I'll give the PG-13-ish version of what happened with these people. But you need to see that through all this, God was a redeeming king. And I want you to know it was scandalous to include women. To put women in a genealogy, in fact, proves it's more historical than if he just put all men. Because who were the first people at the tomb when Jesus arose from the dead? Were women. Who were the first ones to carry on the genealogy at some point? They were women. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But look down at verse 3. You see Judah, the father of Perez, Zerah by Tamar. Now, this is an interesting story. Tamar, this is in Genesis 36 through 38. Tamar had lost her husband, who was the son of her father-in-law. And her father-in-law went looking for a woman of the night, if you will, and found a woman on a roadway. And guess who it was? It happened to be his daughter-in-law. You can put every terrible thought in your mind about this, but father-in-law, unbeknownst to him, thinking it's a prostitute, they get pregnant and the line continues on. And it goes down. Notice the second name that comes in here. You see also down in verse Five, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? By Rahab. You remember that name, don't you? Rahab was also a prostitute. Rahab was there when Joshua's spies came to the promised land, and they snuck in, and she hid them on her roof. And as a way to show appreciation for that, she was told, if you just tie this thing around your house, we will not invade your house when God takes down the walls. Rahab was a prostitute. And yet God used her as a way to come to Christ. In fact, we see in Hebrews 11 that she was a woman of faith. And then you go down even further than that. You see another name, which was not a a woman of the night, so to speak, but a a person that was not well-liked by the Jews. You see a woman by the name of Ruth. Do you see that there? By Boaz, the father, uh, father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess, and she married into the Jewish religion, but she was an outsider, and yet God still used her, and God still allowed her to be a part of the plan that would bring Jesus through this world. And then look at this. You may find this curious, but look down at verse 6. Do you see where it said David was the father of Solomon by the wife of who? Uriah. Whose name is missing there? Yeah, Bathsheba. If you remember the story in 1 Samuel 12, you'll remember that David was supposed to be out warring with the kings. It was springtime. He was supposed to be out, but his eyes got the better of him. He looked out and saw a young woman bathing. And we traditionally teach this, that David and David and Bathsheba had a consensual relationship, but I think the context would insinuate that David took advantage of that situation and would probably be tried in a court today by the very same standards we hold the same people to. It was a terrible thing. But to not bring scandal on her name, Matthew lists Uriah. And do you remember what happened to Uriah? Uriah was killed in battle by David by his command to put him up front so that he'd be the first to be shot at when they were attacking enemies. And yet, through all that messiness, God brings forth this truth. Your success in life and your success in your faith is not based upon you. It's based upon your Redeemer. I mean, if we went back to your family history, what kind of crazy folk would we find? You say, they're sitting right next to me right now, Pastor. (laughs) And it may be true. 
But I want you to know that this tells us that God trades evil for good. He trades ashes for beauty. He trades mourning into dancing and grief into joy. Your life, my life, or any church's life is not a dead-end story. Anybody, anything, anytime, anywhere is redeemable if they go to the Redeemer himself. And that is good news for us. Because Christian here today, may I remind you that you say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. I am the one who sinned the most. And even Revelation says that, behold, I am making all things new. Christ is a Redeemer. No one is beyond his reach. I know we often say that, but too often we don't actually believe that. Oh, God can save anyone, but, oh, man, I've been praying for this person for a long time, or God could never touch that person's life, or have you seen this guy? He'll never come to Jesus. Are you trusting your ability, or are you trusting God's ability to share and save that person? Look, all these people were sinners. All of them had a story. All the men here were sinners. All the women here were sinners. Every one of them had a story. Every one of them stood guilty except one, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he came to be born of a virgin. He's a redeeming king. You know, today, I think so many people say, I've heard it told me over the years in the ministry, Pastor, I'm too big of a sinner for Christ to save me. You're probably the best sinner, if we could say such a thing, that God could save. Because guess what you get that most people don't? You're actually a sinner. Most people, when they come to Jesus, they come strutting like a like a, a sports guy that signs a $700 million contract and walk in the room and say, What's, what can Jesus do for me? Well, he can do lots of things for you. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that you've offended him, a holy God, and you need his forgiveness that only he can provide. He's a redeeming savior. We don't know the stories of all these people. We have very little listed, but what we do know is that if God can save a list like this, he can save any sinner that comes to him. So you come to him as you are. He's a sovereign savior, sovereign king. He's a redeeming king. And finally, I want you to see he is, number three, a saving king, a saving king. Say, well, well, Darren, how how, how did they see this when they were first coming in? I want to just expand on that thought for a second because, again, the, the Jews, especially the disciples, had to be constantly reminded that Jesus did not come to be political. Jesus did not come to be governmental in the worldly sense. Jesus was not running for office. Whether he was on the ballot in Colorado or not on the ballot, whether he's going through the Supreme Court or not for the Supreme Court, Jesus didn't care because he was not there for that purpose. He did not come to make Israel great again. He came to save sinners such as you and such as me. And that's what he came to do. And contrary to all these things, Jesus came and he came boldly. But in John chapter 5, you may remember this episode. They started to to get around Jesus to make him king. And if there was a Baptist group there, they would have formed a committee. They would have set up that committee. They would have had a vote and a recommendation to the church and say, we recommend that Jesus be the governor and king of Israel. And all the people through secret ballot would have said amen, and they would have voted him in right then. Aren't you glad Baptists weren't back there with the Jews in those days? But the point of it is, is that Jesus did not arrive with pomp and circumstance. He came in a lowly manger, and he came and arrived even at his death with palm branches and donkeys. He ascended not to a throne. He ascended to a cross. And while there was some awareness of this, what we find, if you look at your Bible, Matthew 1, why did he come? 
Jesus did not die for a holiday. Jesus died for sinners such as you and me. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Doesn't mean you can't celebrate a holiday, but Jesus did not come so that 1225 every year we could have Christmas. Jesus came to die for sinners. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to know that, that your grace that you receive to become a Christian is all unmerited. It's all nothing you bring to the table. The only thing we bring to the table is that our sin is necessary. Our sin is something we must acknowledge and grant to him. So why did he have to come? Why did he come in the way that he did that we have sung about? Why did he do all these things? John Piper says it best, and he's quotable here. He says, quote, The incarnation is the preparation of the nerve endings for the nails on the cross. Can I say that again? The incarnation is the preparation of the nerve endings for the nails on the cross. In other words, Jesus had a, a brow for the thorns to be on, a broad back for the cross to be carried on. He had cheeks big enough that Judas could betray him and kiss him. He had a side that was there for the piercing of the sword. He had a brain and a spinal column without vinegar and gall so he could feel the physical pain and more so the spiritual weight of our sin. And in all these things, he undertook this for you and for me. He can not only redeem you and, and bring you out, but he can save you. He can take you to heaven. Look, I know Christmas is all about holidays and all those things, but I just want to keep the perspective where it should be. Christmas is about Jesus coming to this world to give his life for us. Nothing more, nothing less. He was born for sinners. He was crucified for sinners. He died on a cross for sinners, and he was raised from the dead for sinners. So what does this mean? It's not on your notes. I added this this morning early on. But let me just give you five quick things as we close this out today. What does this mean for you? We've pretty much summed it up well, I hope. But what does this mean for you? If he's a sovereign king, if he's a redeeming king and a saving king, and all that was kind of unexpected, it kind of came out of nowhere, what does this mean? Let me give you a few thoughts here. First is this. You'll see the first two on the screen. The first is a reminder to you that the gospel is not just good advice. It is good news. If you're here today, this is not just another plea for you to take a, a little nugget, take a little pithy statement, and apply it to your life. I can go on Facebook and scroll through my feed or Instagram or whatever you use, and I can find inspiring quotes all day. The gospel is a summons. It's a demand for you to come to know Jesus Christ. And Christian, can I encourage you this, this season? And every season it is not just a sharing of good news. You have to call people to the carpet with love and grace and humility and God-given boldness to come to Christ. Oh, come to Jesus if you want to. No, come to Jesus. He's coming again. We have to put the backbone in our presentation. Second thing is this, and Amy will put it up. It is a reminder to us that Jesus himself is the center of all history. The Romans, the Babylonians, the Greeks, World War I, World War II, everything is for his glory. Everything pointed backwards and forwards to what Jesus was coming to do. 
Don't forget that. And I want to encourage you, as you read your Bible, many of you starting a new Bible reading program uh, in, in the next couple weeks, and we hope to get some out for you, is that the pages of Scripture are not just random stories put together that have good moral lessons. Look, I love Veggie Tales. Our kids are into that now. I love um, uh, The Odyssey with um, uh, some of these radio shows, and they're all great. But a lot of times they just take a story and give you a moral lesson. Take a story, give you a moral lesson. Do this. Don't do that. And that's fine. We teach our kids those things. But what is the silver lining through it all? It's Jesus Christ. It's him. And it's about his glory and about his purposes on this earth. Number three, name if you just want to put up the next two, that'd be great. Another takeaway from this is that God works all things for his purposes. Your life may be a mess. Your kitchen may be a mess. Your laundry room may be a mess. Your refrigerator may not be stocked. Your gifts may not even be wrapped yet. But if Christ is at the center of your life, no matter what everything looks like in your life or feels like in your life, he's using it for his purposes and for his glory. Be encouraged for that. Tower of you friends, family, members, I just want to encourage us with that too. At times, our church may look like a mess, starting with the pastors. But I want you to know, the more we seek after Christ, the better positioned we are to see that even through the messiness of leadership and church life together, Christ can be glorified if we are humble and if we are prayerful and we are loving to each other, especially this new year. And can I remind you again that the gospel is for the outsider. The gospel is for everybody. Not just people that look like us, sound like us, talk like us. Not even, can I throw in my sports reference because I haven't done one yet today. At high noon tomorrow, for you long Kansas City Chiefs fans, those great Raiders are coming to town, or we're going, I forget, whatever. Yes, even for those people, Christ died. Amen? Amen. Whoever you are, wherever you are, the gospel through the genealogy shows us the gospel is for outsiders. You and I were outsiders. We were far away from the blood of Christ, but Christ drew us to himself. Don't ever forget that. Last thing we'll put up is this. You got that written down. Number five, as we close, Jesus is our ultimate rest. In a world of busyness and hubbub and everything else, Jesus is your rest. When Satan comes after you and says, you don't know your family history. Oh, you got your daddy's sins in you again. Or do you know what your mama did before you were born? Do you know what your cousin did? Do you know what you did? God could never forgive you, could he? And you can go right back to that Satan and say to him, yes, if God can redeem 42 generations of sinners and villains and hoodlums, God can save a person just like me. And I can take that to the bank every single day. And when I go to the ATM, it's not broken. When I go there, I can never overdraw. When I go there, Christ's blood is always sufficient for every sin that I bring to him. And all God's people said, amen. Will you join me in prayer as we close out today? Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign king, that though they expected you to be a physical king, sending your son to this earth to redeem a geopolitical dynasty that had long since died off, some even 500 years previous, you came to orchestrate the details to the very town and the very place and the very people where you would have your son born. 
Father, we thank you that your son is a redeeming king. That is, that he came to save us from our past of sin, our past of regret, our past of everything, our past of offense that we have against you, Father, the holy God. And that he's a saving king, that the only thing we can contribute to that, that, that salvation, that coming to Jesus, that being forgiven of sin is our sin. But we thank you that 100% of Christ is more than 100% of our sin. Father, as we celebrate this week and this weekend with our friends and family, would you remind us of the truth of the gospel that Christ died for sinners, even sinners such as us. Lord, we love you. We pray for our church here at Tower View as we consider the next new year as we go into 2024, that even as we may see sin one against another, unintentional against each other as we may in this church, may you give us grace to cover a multitude of sins. And may it all seek to glorify Christ in the forgiveness and living out of the one another's of Scripture. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your son. We celebrate him again today. And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.